some words, and we're going to read them. Uh, I'll read them to you before Andy comes and speaks to us as we continue our series. I have some good news for you. This is from Luke chapter 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding round him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in their other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Jesus, teach us by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. The uh, topic today is I get it, but I don't believe it. And um, what I want to try and do is take us through a journey towards faith, um, and also a journey through faith um, that many of us uh, will find ourselves on. Because uh, I think faith is the doorway to uh, spirituality. It's the, it's the doorway that we go through to know God and to know uh, uh, those kind of things. Um, it's the primary way in which we connect with God. So on one hand, we've got this, this doorway of faith that we want to step through. But on the other hand, we have this uh, often a, a, a kind of our intellects, uh, our rational part of us is trying to struggle with, well, uh, the questions that we have, as somebody prayed about earlier on, um, and therefore doesn't my intelligence contradict faith, particularly if faith is something that I'm, I'm very unfamiliar with. And uh, the search for authentic faith in life um, is probably one of the biggest quests uh, that anyone can have. And uh, for each one of us, we'll have a very different background uh, to what that looks like. So some of us may have grown up uh, with a faith uh, upbringing. Um, and uh, you know, we know some of the things about that through our parents. But as we've grown older, we've perhaps questioned our beliefs, uh, or we've seen evidence of hypocrisy um, in the lives of the religious, or we've asked questions um, that we've not got um, good answers to. And so we can either sideline our faith, or we can uh, reject it, or we can just lose interest uh, along the way. But one way or another, we've kind of outgrown the faith of our upbringing, and what we need is our faith to be renewed uh, in the sense that it's got to have adult integrity uh, for our lives. Some others of us might have faith, um, but it's been weak, it's been damaged in some way, and it feels a little bit like you're walking along on a sprained ankle. It's just a little bit uncomfortable. It doesn't quite work. Or you're at a meal, beautiful meal, and you've got toothache. You can't really enjoy it. Um, and that's kind of our experience. And it may be that we've been hurt by someone, by the church, by uh, um, someone uh, of, of a religious uh, family member, perhaps, or, or someone else. 
Um, we don't yet have that confidence in our faith. In fact, it kind of brings us more pain than comfort as we walk through life. Or it could be that it's just that the concepts and it's not got that life-transforming uh, energy uh, within us. And it becomes like a vaccination that we've got. You know, we've got enough of it in our system that means uh, that we are free from being infected by a full-blown case of it. You know, full-blown, vibrant faith um, we're immune to. But our faith then for needs invigorating. And yet there are still others who have a very secular, non-religious context. I've got no real concept uh, of, of what faith is all about. In fact, faith is a very strange thing. It might seem a, a very embarrassing thing. It might seem a superstitious thing. It might seem quite a primitive way of viewing life um, as we approach it. It's just on a kind of cultural custom thing for others, but quite foreign to us. And yet within our secular worldview, there's an emptiness. There's a, there's a, there's a kind of unfulfillment. Um, it doesn't quite all make sense as to what life is all about. And so any search for faith um, that we've never had before um, is a very different experience. So we all come with different experiences from our backgrounds towards faith. And we therefore have different stances uh, towards faith. The first stance might be uh, the cynic. And uh, the cynic can be quite aggressive towards faith and towards people of faith. Um, it's not just that they don't believe, but somehow there's emotion tied to it. They're quite aggravated uh, by it, quite a negative attitude. And very often when, when I talk to people who are very cynical towards faith, it is because they've been hurt somewhere in the past. You know, they've had an experience where someone has let them down. They've seen hypocrisy in the lives of, of, of Christians or apparent hypocrisy. Um, it may be an institution that has, has damaged them in some way and they've been deeply wounded by that. And it's always very helpful in those situations to start to ask the questions as to what those negative experiences have been and to help people and help ourselves unpack what they are because probably most of us somewhere along the line have had those experiences. Um, but cynicism kills faith in us. It may be a defense mechanism or it may be that it, it robs many other things in life, but it's something that is worth dealing with. But that's often where we come from. Another uh, approach that we come with might be skepticism. It's not as emotionally charged, this, um, but people have got genuine questions that they're very skeptical about the answers. It may be they've never really explored them or uh, had answers uh, that have been kind of um, uh, adequate for their, their thinking. Um, but the, the approach really with this is to ask what those questions are, to help one another understand the questions that they have so that we can then help them to find answers that work uh, for where they're coming from. And we can be a, a closed skeptic that just says, I'm just not interested, or we genuinely we can be open in trying to explore it. The third uh, approach or um, stance somebody might have is one of apathism, apathetic. I really don't care. You know, I don't see the importance of it. You know, it's like asking me if there were parrots on the moon, you know, what color of feathers would they have? You know, it's, it's irrelevant, I don't care, it doesn't really matter. Um, and the challenge here is always to try and get people to somehow think about the big questions of life, which is very hard. And very often it's a crisis in someone's life that brings them to that point. I met just recently a guy called Dean. And Dean and his wife Rebecca came on the Alpha course some 15 years ago, I think. And I, ha I hadn't seen him for 15 years. And uh, I met him at this, this meal. And uh, I, I said, Dean, you know, because Dean was somebody who came through the Alpha course unscathed. You know, it was fine for his wife, but as far as he was concerned, you know, that's it. Okay, great, I've looked in it and I'm off. 
But some months after that, he's telling me he had this serious accident. It involved, it was, I, I, wasn't gonna, I was going to put a picture up, but I decided not to. It involved a circular saw and his face. And uh, this thing went within a millimeter of his main artery. Okay? He said, that started me thinking about life and death and what it's all about. And he said, suddenly, everything that we'd looked at over those 10 weeks on Alpha started to be relevant to my life. Um, he's now uh, on, a, on a leadership board of a large church in the Midlands, and he's absolutely following this Jesus wholeheartedly. Now, all I would say is, if that's you, there are less painful ways to ask the big <laughs> questions of life. So um, let me encourage you to do those. Um, there's also the, the fearful, okay? very open, but fearful. Perhaps we might put Peter in this category, in this um, gospel account in Luke. You know, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. But then Jesus says to Simon Peter, don't be afraid. Okay? You can trust me. You know, we're, we're open people, but we're fearful to trust God with our lives. Like um, uh, the reading said, you know, the, the, the sketch reading was, you know, we know ourselves and we, we don't want to expose ourselves. We don't want to face ourselves. And when we face God, we face ourselves with that. Um, you know, admitting we've been wrong, fearful of what other people might think. And so the question there is, what are we fearful of? and start to uh, unpack that a little bit. And uh, we used this sketch this morning, this um, parable, and you're probably sitting there thinking, what was that about? But I just thought, it's Jesus taught with parables, and the thing about parables was you've got to go away and think about them, right? So to do something that people are less familiar with, I thought was helpful. But my understanding of it, and to be honest, even when we were looking at it the other day, I was thinking, oh, I get another aspect of this now, I'm trying to work it out, is, is is your view of God like the man in the corrugated shed who thinks God is just after you? Okay? He's just trying to shoot you down. Okay? Is that the view that we have of God? And then he comes out and he says, what, you know, why, are you, why are you persecuting me? He said, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not your enemy, I'm your friend. And then I'm thinking, well, what are the bullet holes there? What's Jesus doing with a gun? You know, what's that about? You know, why is he shooting bullet holes through this? And we were sitting there talking about it and we thought, well, actually, although he tries to block them up to begin with, he ends up looking beyond himself. He starts looking out into the, the world. He sees the, the couple holding hands. He sees the kids flying kites. He sees the clouds in the sky. It's, it's, it's like God is trying to say, this, I want you to see beyond yourself. And so often the things in life make us think wider than we would have done in the comfort of where we might be. So anyway, you can discuss that to your heart's content of what, it, what it's all about. And then there's the open inquirer. Uh, you know, people who are genuinely looking for answers to your questions, honest journey searching for meaning, open to read, open to listen, open to discuss, and then take on board the things that we learn. And the question along, along that part of our journey is, what, well, what's stopping us? What are the things that are actually stopping us from now of asking God to begin to forgive our lives or to lead our lives forward? And uh, so each one of us, either today or somewhere along our journey, we'll, we'll probably find, identify with some of those in our things. And it's good to talk about what our story, what our journey has been uh, with others. But when it comes to belief in God, that simple intellectual question, is there a God? There are three basic responses. There's yes, I believe there is a God. There's no, I believe there isn't a God. Uh, or there is, I really don't know. Um, and uh, I don't know if you can know. Uh, what I want to say, though, is the middle, the, the no there, I don't believe there are God, is the atheistic position. But I think it is a faith position as much as anything else. 
And the reason that I say that is I don't think you can prove conclusively that God doesn't exist any more than you can prove conclusively that God does exist. So here's a little diagram just to think about. So if A, that circle represents all truth everywhere. The absolute fullness of truth is, is that in that circle. B represents the sum of all the truth that is known by all human beings through history. So everything that humanity's managed to work out, discover, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'm not saying that's to scale, by the way, but uh, I don't want to get ourselves a bit beyond ourselves. But then there's another uh, circle which represents the knowledge of the person who says, no, there isn't a God. Okay? Now, what I think they can honestly say is that, no, in my experience, I have no reason to recognize the existence of God. I think that's a legit statement. But it's a circle C statement, and it ignores a huge quantity of evidence and experience of the B circle. And to extend that certainty to the entirety of truth and say absolutely there is no God is a faith statement, not a, a statement of fact or on reason, science, uh, or all the rest of it. So it doesn't mean the atheist is wrong, but what it does do is it levels the playing field and says actually it's a faith statement of some sort or other um, as well. And it, the, the atheist does not have the high ground of logic, reason, science, and certainty, and you know, all those of faith are just muddling around somewhere in the Middle Ages type of thing. Uh, but actually both have faith of one sort or another. Now there may be lots of good reasons why an atheist um, takes that stance. It may be, you know, that every religious person they've ever met is an absolute nutter. Um, you know, it may be that the ones they've met are all ill-mannered and very naive in their thinking. And that may well be their experience. Um, it may be that they feel religion is a very primitive uh, way of uh, looking at the world. And actually, we, you know, we want to be on the leading edge of, of, of the future uh, with that and of human development. It may be that they've chosen a scientific worldview and that prohibits uh, anyone from believing in anything else that can't be verified by the five senses or some mathematical proof. And therefore, there's lots of plausible reasons why someone might take that stance. And I think one of the questions to always explore with someone of that um, position is what kind of God don't you believe in? Because very often they'll describe uh, a God that probably we wouldn't believe in either. But it's helpful to understand what it is they are rejecting. Um, and again, has there been pain in their life uh, around that as well? But if there is no God, if there is no God, there are some big questions that remain unanswered in life. You know, why does something exist, not nothing? Um, you know, if you go with the Big Bang, why did the Big Bang bang when it did and how it did? You know, why did conscious, intelligent life develop in a way that asks these questions. Okay, does life have a meaning? Um, because most of the world are looking for some sort of meaning uh, in life and desperate for it. You know, does human history lead anywhere or is it all just a complete waste of time? You know, is death the end? You know, are good and evil, right and wrong, ultimate realities or just social constructs that humans' opinions come up with? You know, there are some big questions that you've got to ask. And if people say, or if you say, who needs a reason? You know, it's just chance, who cares? I would argue that that is a lazy excuse. That actually these are real questions that real people have that we need to tackle um, in our thinking through things. So it leaves us with a crisis of meaning that is hardwired into humanity 
people looking for deep uh, answers to deep satisfaction in life. You know, if there is no God, then the problems of evil and suffering are not solved. Okay, it's just random chance what happens. There's no explanation, no meaning to it whatsoever. There's no afterlife and there's no redemption. There's no hope. It's just random. If there's no God, then there's no standards to critique what is good and bad, what is right and wrong, what is just and unjust. You know, morality is pretty well meaningless. You know, if there is no God, we don't make sense. You know, I was asking this question. Um, C.S. Lewis, um, in his book, Mere Christianity, asks us just for a moment to imagine a world where eyes have never evolved or developed um, in life. And he says this, if the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe, and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should ever know that it was dark. Because if there's no eyes, dark has no meaning. Similarly, the fact that eyes exist suggests that light must exist. And the fact that we have spiritual longings, the fact that we even have a meaningful category of thought and speech called spirituality, suggests that there is some corresponding reality out there which we have the capacity to sense. That capacity would be called faith, and that reality, God. And so for many people, atheism is too extreme a solution. It's too great a leap of faith um, in, the, in the other direction. And so people go for the atheism. So the agnostic says, I don't know. Now, it could be that they are very close, and they just say, oh, I don't know, and nobody can possibly know. How can I possibly, possibly know? So I'm not going to even bother, um, because, you know, it's all about the mind, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the rational mind, the five senses, you know, and if I can't work it out, then it can't be known. It means no room for something from outside, outside revelation to impact uh, into our lives. So it's a, it's a kind of uh, philosophy of, of knowledge, if you like, which you, are, you can't really prove or disprove whether that is the limit to knowledge. But actually, perhaps, like the bullet holes, there's something beyond uh, what we can see and touch and all the rest of it. And it also ignores a long history of profound Christian writers and thinkers. You C.S. Lewis's and others. There's, there's, a, there's a category, or a list of people who profoundly think stuff through that you've got to ignore. And there's also the millions of people who've had some experience of God transforming their lives that you've got to take out of the equation. And so there's the open agnostic. Um, now, they may never have had a spiritual experience of any kind that would suggest that there is a God of any kind, um, and certainly none that they've net recognized, but, but they're open. You know? They may not know for sure, but they're, you know, they're open to it. You imagine the early explorers who um, you know, weren't very sure whether the Earth was spherical or flat. Now, they reckon they've actually known it's spherical for a long, long time because the Greeks were very good at the maths and all the rest of it. But when you go out in a ship, you don't really know if you're going to get all the way around and come back to where you started. You don't know where you're going to go. Okay, so they were open, but they just didn't have a clue exactly what was going to happen. They were filled with uncertainty. They were filled, often made errors uh, in, in where they went and how they got there. But they set off in their ships on a quest and on an adventure, okay, trying to work out what might be out there. And they are the necessary prices to pay for discovery. So you can imagine a conversation going with um, someone who, who's open. So I might say to them, okay, John, you know, you, you're agnostic, and, but you're open to the possibility of God. And he says, yeah, that's, that's exactly the case. Okay, so if God exists, would it make sense to you to pray? 
uh, pray? Oh, I'm not sure where I'd begin. Well, if, if God isn't intelligent enough to create the universe, and he's personal enough to give us kind of conscious life, it might make sense to say, God, are you out there? Okay, like picking up the phone? Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. And uh, to take that a step further, I could also imagine saying, if you're there, please help me to know you. And he's like, okay, so yeah, that would make sense. It might feel a bit weird, but you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't know quite know how to do that. But it would definitely make sense, nothing more than that. Okay, so I'd say, yeah, that's fine. So you start with that, and you'd only take it further if, if somehow you know, a prayer was answered or some way God's kind of moved in, in your life or showed you something that opened your eyes to that. Yeah, that, he says, but that sounds like an experiment. And he said, well, yeah, exactly. Faith is like an experiment. It's, uh, you, you try a little bit, and you're open to it, and then see what happens through that. And that somebody who's agnostic but open is well-placed to start that experiment. Um, and why we have things like the Try Praying Initiative, because people are open to that. But he says, but doesn't it then require faith to gain more faith? Great question. But do you have enough faith to start looking for more faith? And he says, well, yeah, it sounds like I do. And so often in our lives, it is that. It's do I have enough faith to step into this to then discover more faith? It's a journey that we go on. And if that's how you feel today, then maybe you are ready to move from just being an open agnostic to actually tentatively experimenting, if you like. Um, and my prayer, the first prayer I ever prayed was simply this. I wasn't a Christian. If you're up there, God, okay, if you're up there, God, Will you start to lead my life and show me how to live? But that opened up everything. Because if you've got enough faith to wonder, or you've got enough faith to ask, or even more faith to seek, that is a brilliant starting place. Because it's like exploring, and uh, those early explorers setting off. Now, we've looked at stances of faith. There are also stages of faith in people's lives. And Peter is a good example, I think, of this. Because first of all, we see his anxiety. He's afraid. He's fearful, um, as we've just looked at. Can he trust this Jesus with his life, you know, with his faults? He thinks he's just going to let him down, which he is. Okay? But Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. I've got plans for you. I've got purposes for you. So it's really pre-faith, but there's that sense of anxiety as we trust this Jesus. And then it moves on to a stage of simplicity. And uh, as we read, Peter just says he left his boats and followed. It seems very simple. It's that stage of faith that everything is just right or wrong. You know, everything's very black and white. It seems very simple. But as you go through life, then we move into a stage of complexity because life is much more complex than we first thought. How does this work out? And if you look at Peter's story in John chapter 6, Jesus comes and he talks about himself being the bread of life, the manna from heaven, and they're trying to get their heads around this stuff. And it says in verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? And Jesus asks, does this offend you? He says, this is spiritually discerned. As Stephen shared a little bit on, it's not just about our minds, but it's about God's spirit. Some of you do not believe. And from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus says, do you 12 want to leave too? And Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Following Jesus, trusting Jesus, faith in Jesus has got a little bit more complex. 
than at first. It's become a little bit more challenging. It's moved from simply tell me what I need to know to do it to show me how I need to grow. How do I make this relevant? How do I work this out in the complexities of my everyday life? And very often, a lot of people move to this stage of perplexity. They just get very confused. And we see this with Peter towards the end in John 18 and John 21, where you know, Jesus is arrested and he's about to be crucified and uh, Peter gets his sword out and chops the ear of the soldier off in panic. Okay? Secondly, he then goes and denies Jesus three times. He seems to be losing his way. He seems to become disillusioned and just goes back to his, his old day job. And for many, the complexities of faith lead us into perplexity. You know, we're looking for authentic faith and we get disillusioned with the inauthentic. You know, suddenly everything becomes questionable. You know, everything becomes relative. We're just going to question everything. Disillusionment sets in. And uh, we don't trust uh, people. We don't trust the authorities. You know, they're, they're dishonest, they're controlling. They're giving me simple answers to complex issues. And uh, I don't want to follow it. And people do one of two things. They either go off and wander off in solitude on their own and walk away from it. Or sometimes they take a little group of people equally disillusioned as themselves. And that becomes their, their metal shed, if you like. But what we see with Peter is he moves beyond this. And he moves to a stage of humility. John 21 and verse 7 to 22, Jesus comes to Peter after his death and resurrection he sends him fishing again. He says, listen, I've been out all night, Jesus. Caught nothing but humility. I'll go out once more. Catches a massive catch. And uh, then three times Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? And then he reinstates him back into that place uh, on his faith journey again. And the focus here is about being wise. It's about making the most of life. And actually, I think it's about integrating different things. So those different stages through simplicity and complexity and perplexity, this humility kind of overlaps the wisest bits of all of those, and it starts to pull it together. It lives with the tension uh, across all of those things as well. But it's now no longer just about me. It's about the bigger picture. It's, uh, it's about my relationship to the whole and my relationship to God. And it's about graciously working with people on those different stages um, rather than living in judgment on them. But as I kind of come to a close, really, Jesus doesn't say, just believe. He doesn't say, believe because I said so. You know, you're so disobedient. Just believe because I said so. He always said, believe because. Okay? He said, believe because. Believe because of the quality of my teachings. Okay, this stuff really works. Okay, it gets at the heart of the human nature. Be, believe because, he says, of the miracles I do. He says that in John, his works. Believe because you see my disciples loving one another. Okay, believe because you see my followers displaying this mysterious but real unity. Believe because it proves true in your experience. Believe because my profile was foretold by the ancient prophets and it's all come into reality hundreds of years before. Believe because somehow God makes it known and real to you and clear to you. Believe because credible people have given witness to my 
death and resurrection. And they ate with me um, as we just read again. Believe because the fruit of my life was good. Look at my character. Okay, the faith Jesus calls to is not a blind, phony, whatever faith. It is one that has, um, has credibility. Okay, it is intellectually honest. And the church at times has done a miserable job PR-wise for God's kingdom. Sometimes it gets it good. But wherever we go, however disillusioned we get, we've got to go back to look at the life of Jesus. Because as someone has described him as scandalously inclusive, you know, he spent his time with the social outcasts, with, not with the do-gooders, the religious do-gooders, but the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, the downtrodden. You know, when the, when the religious tried to exclude the children, he said, let the children come to me. When the disciples tried to exclude the non-Jews, he says, here's a non-Jew, this Roman centurion, I've never seen a faith like it in the whole of Israel. Okay, he's radically inclusive. It's a common community. Come and join the party. And uh, it's that inclusion of people that rings true, that this is something that works. This is something that is a real thing. So he describes him as relationally electric. You know, you watch him with Peter. He encourages him, and then he confronts him. Then he encourages him again and reinstates him. You know, he brings him in so patiently to reach his full potential in life. And uh, that might be scary, but it's something to think, I want to sign up to that team. I want to sign up to someone like that. And the way that he so naturally interacts with people, you know, we see him with a Samaritan woman, you know, someone who, with multiple divorces, culturally looked down upon, kind of cross-culturally, brings up incredibly sensitive issues with her in John 4. And yet she goes away wanting to invite the whole village. Come and meet this guy, he's amazing. Out of all of that, you know, he is just remarkable how he is. You know, the stories we read of him are so unexpected. They're so unrehearsed. You wouldn't make them up. Um, it has that ring of authenticity about it. And we begin to experience that ourselves in our lives. And he's incredibly graciously demanding. You know, we have religion that demands and says, you must do, you must do, you have to do this. And if you get it wrong, you're a failure. And we get a world that says, do what you like. It doesn't matter if you do this, don't you do this. What we need is something that says, live a better life. But the call to it comes with such grace and such compassion. And that's what we see in Jesus. You know, a livable path and a yoke that we can bear. And so at least have a look at Jesus in the Gospels. Where your faith struggles, look at him and see how he works. I want to finish with a guy called Ron. And uh, Ron again came on the Alpha course once, and he said to me basically this question. He said, I get it, Andy, but I don't believe it. He said, how can you believe this stuff 100%? I said, okay, Ron, tell me how much of it you believe. Well, he said, probably about 70%. I'm probably convinced by about 70% of it. So I said, okay, so you're going to walk away and put your faith in the 30% that you're not sure about, rather than the 70% that actually you think adds up. He said, oh, I never really thought about it like that. And over the next few days, he said that changed how he thought. And so he went on. He had enough faith to start the next bit of the journey, to pursue more faith, to experience the truth in his own life, of which today he could tell many stories of how it's worked out 
in his life. Let's pray together. I want to use use a very simple prayer that actually was probably one of the first things I came across. Um, You know, I had a little Gideon's New Testament that I'd got at school, I think. And I didn't know where to start. And I turned to a page that just said, In Search of Faith. And here's a two-line prayer from it. And you might want to, whatever stage of the journey you are, might want to make it yours this morning. Dear God, I find it difficult to know what to believe. But help me to trust you and what you say in the Bible, even though I don't understand everything. Amen. And Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us just to move forward in our steps of faith. And I want to pray particularly uh, for any who want to explore that, that you would lead them forwards with just enough faith. But I also want to pray for any that are in that perplexed zone, that Lord, even this morning, you'd speak to them um, and grace them with humility to step forward from that place. In Jesus' name, amen.